Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the Greek mythological figures Achilles and Patroclus. Before we get into the episode, we've got a quick promotion for another podcast that we think our listeners would really enjoy. Inappropriate Questions from CBC Podcasts is a show about questions, ones that might be uncomfortable. From how old are you to did you lose weight and can I speak to your manager, hosts Eleanor Hudgens-Lyle, a queer millennial, and Harvenda Wadwa, a dad, talk to people who have been asked these questions to find out where they come from and learn more respectful ways to get curious. You can subscribe to Inappropriate Questions on the CBC CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the episode. We have some content warnings before we get into this episode. This episode will contain descriptions of war, including mentions of PTSD and sexual slavery within a war context. It will also include mentions of grief, including self-harm behaviors, mentions of sex, including sex between adults and minors, negative attitudes to sex work, and modern homophobia in scholarship. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and select a different one. As stated, up top, Achilles and Patroclus are Greek mythological figures, heroes of the decade-long Trojan War fought between the Trojans and the Greeks after the Trojan prince Paris took Helen of Sparta from her husband Menelaus. Achilles and Patroclus are most prominently known from Homer's Iliad, but they are also depicted and mentioned in various other examples of Greek literature. In lieu of our normal biographical structure, we're going to talk about various depictions of them in ancient Greek literature and how that relationship is depicted and how gay it is. So we have to begin, as Greek literature does, with Homer. Homer was understood from antiquity as being the single composer behind the Iliad and the Odyssey, as well as a whole host of other epics that are no longer generally attributed to the same author. We cannot overstate enough the importance of Homer to the Greeks. His works were foundational texts to Greek culture, they're a key part of Greek education, and in terms of style, structure, and character, the Iliad and the Odyssey are immensely influential to later tragedians and orators and historiographers. Despite this importance, we have no idea who Homer was. <laughs> but we do know he was blind. And by the time of the classical period, neither did the Greeks. Some traditions have survived, such as Homer having been Ionian or famously having been blind, but there's no evidence that these are factually based. Nevertheless, throughout much of history, the Iliad and the Odyssey have been understood to be the work of one mind, and this remained the case more or less until the 18th century. Although questions about Homer's identity and the composition of his works have been asked since ancient times, these questions emerged in a new form and became the major thrust of Homeric studies in the 19th century with the rise of German classical philology, which subjected the text to rigorous linguistic and historical analysis, which made people really, really nervous because they were also doing it to the Bible. <laughs> So the Homeric question, as it's come to be known, was firmly established with the publication of Friedrich August Wolff's Prolegomena ad Homerum in 1795. So this is back when you can still publish academic texts in Latin. <laughs> Wolff's text analysed the Homeric texts that we have and how they might differ from the original composition. We don't need to talk about it anymore, don't worry. <laughs> Um, this isn't a Greek grammar class? No. He had no delusions of recovering the original text, saying, 
If we demand the bard and Simon pure condition and are not content with what contented Plutarch, Longinus, or Proclus, we will have to take refuge either in empty prayers or in unrestrained license in divination. That doesn't really give anything to the episode. I just thought it was pretty fun. <laughs> I really enjoy how, like, old scholars wrote, because academics now, like, they're just so much more dry in comparison to this really florid kind of purple prose. Uh, this stuff is still around, absolutely, though. Yeah, no, I guess it is. Yeah. I guess it is. And when I read it now, I'm like, can you just, like, get to the point? But when I read it in, like, old scholars, I'm like, this is great. I love it. Well, it's because when you read old scholars, generally, you're not reading them for, like, the actual academic point they're making, because it's probably irrelevant so That's you can just true. kind of cruise <laughs> yeah yeah this questioning of homer's work and where it came from and so forth was driven home by the then recent publication of venetus a which is one of the homeric manuscripts so one of the sort of older surviving copies of the iliad dating to the 10th century which includes emendations and changes made by ancient scholars so that kind of like is available more widely than it ever has been and people are like oh this has <laughs> been tampered with <laughs> What is the truth? So from this emerged two rival schools of thought with two competing answers to the Homeric question. The analysts understood the Iliad to be composed of many different texts that had been stitched together by an editor, and they basically set about trying to figure out where the seams between the different poems were. The Unitarians, on the other hand, understood that the text was the work of a single mind. It had been composed as a whole, and they set about trying to prove this by pointing to, like, you know, thematic through lines and things like that. I don't think that, like, a thematic through line is an argument that was composed by a single person, because, like, a single editor can pull together a thematic through line as well. Uh, I think it depends on how it manifests in the text, though. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to argue with you too much, because the general understanding is that they were wrong. So... Yeah. Um, I also didn't read that much, like, 19th century Unitarian <laughs> Iliad analysis, so, like, I may be misrepresenting them. <laughs> A different answer was offered in the 1920s by the American classicist Milman Parry, who put forth the idea that the text resulted from an oral tradition. Parry's work focused on the use of formulaic phrases as being key to the composition process. His work explored things like the Homeric epithets that you would have noticed all throughout the text, where you repeatedly have people being referred to with the same epithets over and over again, you know, grey-eyed Athena, swift-footed Achilles, you know, so-and-so like the gods, etc, etc. Right, okay. And Parry put forth the idea that these existed to be able to fill in the meter when the poet needed something of a, you know, like, convenient quantity of, like, long and short syllables and things like that. Okay. Even though you've been, like, talking about the, like, scholarly tradition and the different understandings it didn't really occur to me that we hadn't thought of it as an oral tradition like even when you were talking about these different ideas of was it composed by one person or was it brought together from works by many people it was only when you were like this guy put forward this idea that was an oral tradition i was like oh that wasn't just always an accepted fact yeah i think that that idea existed before parry but he brought it forth as the predominant idea and brought forth the ways that that had influenced the composition of the text mm. anyway yeah regarding the formulaic nature of the text other scholars have since noted similar formulaic qualities at various levels so not just in like little phrases but also through to quite like big sections of the text with like type scenes like banquets or sacrifices that are constructed of the same elements in the same order every time mm. that are repeated repeatedly throughout the text <laughs> 
I think you, Jason, when you were reading this, maybe with some amount of frustration, were telling me how, I think it was maybe the Embassy to Achilles, where they go through in detail in this whole order of like all of the stuff they're going to give Achilles and they decide all of that and then they go to Achilles and then they say the exact same thing in the same <laughs> order. Yeah, yeah. And they do that again later. Um, yeah, when Priam comes to Achilles, the things that he is told to say to Achilles and then the things that Achilles is told by the gods to kind of, in terms of how to treat him, like and the gods tell other gods to give the message <laughs> to Achilles and then the god tells the exact same message to Achilles and then Priam is told the exact same message and it, there's a lot of repetition, yeah. I definitely noticed that. <laughs> so from Harry's work developed the idea that this was indicative of an oral tradition and performed the function of aiding the bard to compose while he sang. To test this theory, Parry and his colleague Albert Lord travelled to what was then Yugoslavia to study the South Slavic oral poetic tradition and found similar formulaic techniques used by the illiterate poets of that tradition. That's very cool. Hmm. Parry noted that textual inconsistencies didn't matter in this medium and that there was no concept of a fixed text. So poetic composition for those bards and we theorise for Homer was less like the method familiar to us today in writing and more like musical improvisation. So a poet would hear a story, understand its general plot and themes, and then be able to reproduce it using formulaic tools to aid the performance. This is how we get things like these bards in then Yugoslavia, now a whole bunch of countries, saying that they're able to hear a very, very long poem and then reproduce it perfectly. That's mm. something that sounds very amazing to us, but they don't mean literally word for word. They mean they can reproduce it, you know, as they understand yeah. it. Yeah, when they, when they say perfectly, they mean perfectly in the spirit. They don't mean perfectly in the sense that we would think of that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because the sense that we would think of it is just fundamentally irrelevant to the medium. Yeah. yeah. So each time a poem was performed, it would have the same sequence of events, but it would change depending on the audience and could respond to the audience's moods. Mm -hmm. and so forth. The Iliad was obviously written down at some point, but we don't know when. Albert Lord theorized that Homer lived at just the time that writing was being reintroduced to the Greeks and he had dictated it to a scribe. Uh, it is true that scholars generally estimate Homer's lifetime and the resurgence of writing to have happened around the same time, but that's like a little too neat <laughs> and a little too cute story. Uh, and it's generally considered pretty unlikely that it happened that neatly. So the process by which the text came to be written down is also debated. So as I alluded to, there had been literate societies in the second millennium BCE in Greece uh, but for unknown reasons again it's debated they had collapsed around the 12th century BCE and Greece had entered a dark age during which writing was forgotten in the 8th century there was a cultural resurgence and we see a population boom and an increase in trade and travel and art and architecture and all good stuff and also the reintroduction of writing now in the form of the Greek alphabet which we still have today another thing that I want to note is while the poems are believed to have been composed in the late 8th to early 7th centuries BCE they're actually set much earlier. So even to the earliest audiences of these poems, the poem describes the distant past. Unsurprisingly, they're not an accurate depiction of an earlier Bronze Age society of heroes, but instead they're understood to be a mix of details that the poet understood to be historical detail and details that would have been familiar to their contemporary audience. So because of this ambiguous setting, it's very difficult to use them to glean any kind of historical detail about their society that created them. Not that it stopped a lot of crappy <laughs> documentaries from trying. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's true. So what I want you to take away from all of that is how ripe the text is for ambiguities and the difficulty of asserting what is canonical here. Um, I want us to avoid thinking about this as there being one true version of the Iliad, even if it's a version lost to us, because to do so is to unmoor it from its origins and limit it down to a fixed text that never existed. So you mentioned like one of the manuscripts that was around, and I've already forgotten the name, but it started with V. Venatus A. Yeah. Yes. When Jason and I read the Iliad mm. for this episode, is there a specific manuscript that's like the one generally used uh, in translation? Well, Venetus A is one of the more like popular ones. They are like broadly yeah. the, the yeah. same, thankfully. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know how scholars get into like what would happen is when there's the bits that are in question, Mm-mm. you can compare. Yeah, and you make very difficult high-level decisions about what, you know, word actually makes sense there based on you having a lot of knowledge of Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, like, this is a bit beyond me. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. I just remember um, there being, like, one bit in the version I was reading that was just, like, in square brackets, and I was like, okay, is this, like, where did you get this from? What's happening here? But I don't recall there actually being any more detail about the manuscript manuscript tradition. Um, the, the useful thing as well about the different manuscripts is the notes on them by, like, much older scholars as well mm-hmm. rather than just purely the text itself mm, um, okay. like it's getting a bit ahead of us here but one of the types of argument that I decided to just completely omit because it involved getting too deep into the manuscript tradition and I just didn't think that we needed to do that <laughs> was That's what fair. various ancient scholars writing on the Iliad considered to be legitimate and not legitimate, what they thought was added in later and so forth. Mm. And sometimes that was explicitly because they were like, hey, this got this bit got added in by someone who thought that Achilles and Patroclus were gay. This bit is too gay. <laughs> And stuff Must, like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, like that kind of argument about all kinds of things, not just like the one thing we care about, which is how gay is it, <laughs> um, are really, really interesting if we want to study mm-hmm. the Iliad. The text we have isn't any kind of exact record of Homer's Iliad. At best, it's a documentation of a singular performance that is no more definitive than any other. Also, I think it would be good for us to keep in mind the effect of changes in medium on a story. So if the text we have is a transcribed version of an oral poem, essentially, uh, not only has that created a fixed version, but it's also stripped away communicative tools like intonation and gesture and musical accompaniment. By the time Homer was written down, it had already become a transformative work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the reason why I say all of that is because like, debating whether or not Achilles and Patroclus is gay is about like really nitty gritty picking over lines in the text and I really want us to have a sense of just like obviously that's what we have to do but of how like difficult that is to do with any kind of surety yeah of how little of the puzzle we're working with Mm. yeah as stated earlier the Iliad is set during the Trojan War the Trojan War itself is one episode in an extensive mythology and the Iliad narrows its focus down even more to a few days in the final year of the war and predominantly to the figure of Achilles who faces the choice of a long life lived in obscurity or a short one that will grant him immortality through glory. It's a very cool premise (laughs) for a poem. (laughs) The focus on this character is established in the first line of the poem, which reads, Men in Aide Thea Peliadio Achilleus sing muse the rage of Achilles son of Peleus. The first word in that, men in, is rage, really putting to to the forefront what this is about, which is about Achilles being furious and being a jerk about it. (laughs) Um, And 
it's it's kind of fun when you read translations into English that people will really try and like reproduce that and put anger as the first word in ways that don't really work syntactically. So they'll be like, the anger muse sing, and it'll be like, what does that mean? <laughs> That's just some random words just yes. jumbled together. So the poem begins with the priest Chryses coming to ransom his daughter Chryseis, who has been taken as a war prize by Agamemnon. We're not going to talk about that too much, but obviously there's just a lot of sexual violence going on in the background of this poem. It's not going to come up that much, but I I wanted to kind of explicitly make note of that and not just mm-hmm. let it be something that we're taking for granted as a normal part of this society that we're visiting in this. I feel like that kind of thing is very much treated with a lot of matter-of-factness in classics and something you just have to put up with. And it's something that a lot of women in particular have trouble with when they come to classics. And I think it's important to kind of validate, like, if you just hate this poem because it's full of rape, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. In recompense for being forced to give Chryseis up, Agamemnon takes Achilles' war prize, Briseis. And in response to this insult to his honor, Achilles withdraws himself and his forces from the war. The Greeks suffer as a result, and Patroclus persuades Achilles to let him take the men into battle with himself in Achilles' armour, and he is killed. Achilles returns to battle to avenge him, and although the poem ends before his death, it is understood that he will soon die and Troy will soon fall. And that's the Iliad. Yeah. Very concise. Yeah. Other stuff happens. Odysseus is here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Odysseus is here. He gets injured. That that I feel was the extent of what he did. He'll do more stuff in the sequel. (laughs) Uh, Achilles fights a river one time. That's pretty sick. Yeah, all the bits where the gods convince people to fight and then convince people to run away and then convince people to fight again. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot more of that than I was expecting. A lot more of the gods, like, really nitty-gritty intervening in the war, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, haha, we took your armor. Haha, we put a cloud around you. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the great problems of adapting the Iliad today because it's not... I mean, first of all, it's hard to, like, depict in any way that is sort of not silly to us. Mm. And also it's just, I think, not something that modern audiences are, like, prepared to take at face value without being sort of convinced that this is a reasonable part of the story yeah 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 so now that we know what homer is and what the iliad is and what happens in it and whatnot uh you know like an hour and a half into this episode whatever uh, (laughs) let's talk about how achilles and patroclus are like really quite gay (laughs) um so I'm just going to do a bit of a survey of their relationship in the text, which I feel in and of itself is kind of like, if not enough evidence to prove they're gay, definitely enough evidence to make us stop and be like, so what's up with that? <laughs> so there is incredible strength of emotion depicted between Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad. His relationship with Achilles is one of Patroclus's most fundamentally defining traits. Heroes tend to have like a few defining traits often described in epithets, and Patroclus is often referred to with things like like dearest to Achilles and things like that. I was going to ask what it said in the version you read because the version I read said Achilles henchman. Oh, and that's I bizarre. Found that very funny and jarring, and I was like, this just sounds like he's like I don't know a thirties gangster. Yes. <laughs> Patroclus emerges from the shadows, clicking his fingers. <laughs> yes. I was going to say I feel like um, and I don't forgive me because I will not get the pronunciation of any name right. That's at fine. Any point. Um, I feel like if anyone is Achilles henchman it's like automaton yeah he he's like achilles henchman <laughs> you know he's just like a dude who follows achilles around patroclus is like his dearest companion yeah yeah <laughs> his very best friend 
And yeah, that does seem to be his only character trait. Uh, I disagree. A thing that a lot of people write about is how um, Achilles and Patroclus's personalities and characters are just fundamental opposites of each other. So if you pay a lot of attention to how Patroclus is described and what he's seen as doing that isn't just like hanging with Achilles, mm. he's referred to often as gentle and compassionate and things like that. Mm. A lot of the things we see him do, he'll be sent on a little like mission or something for Achilles and he'll stop because he sees someone is wounded and he'll stop and he'll heal them and he'll take them back to their tent and he'll make sure that they're okay and things like that so i think actually patroclus's defining trait is is kindness yeah okay that 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 is fair and that definitely did come across in Mm. the text it definitely comes up like when patroclus dies and they're having his funeral i was thinking about that like they talk a lot when they do his eulogies about how kind and caring and gentle he was and i was thinking like that is very unusual for a soldier's funeral during war to not kind of be focusing on his military exploits and instead on his compassion, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I left it out because a lot of that stuff gets talked about in the context of people sort of saying they fundamentally exist as foils to each other and, like, that's why they're not gay because it's just a literary construct to demonstrate stuff mm. about Achilles' character. And I'm like, I mean, like, I, I think that they are foils to each other and there's a lot of good stuff here, but none of that makes them not gay. So <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. we don't need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, But, like, it's 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 really good. I'm really into it. Patroclus's first first utterance in the Iliad in book 11 is addressed to Achilles he says what do you wish with me Achilles why do you call me it's not a very big consequence but that's what he says <laughs> um, his last words are a threat to Hector that Achilles will kill him Achilles and Patroclus are generally found together uh, Patroclus is referred to most often as Achilles companion or his dear companion or his most dear companion <laughs> Uh, there's not a stronger degree than superlative, so it ends there. The nature of that term itself of calling someone someone's dear companion can be debated, but what is striking is the frequency of its use. It defines Patroclus in the text. They're presented as working in equilibrium, they play music together, they prepare a meal together with Achilles serving the meat and Patroclus serving the bread. I really enjoyed that part where it just like mm. described the meal in great detail. Yeah. That's one of my favourite bits. I like how <laughs> meals consist of bread, meat and wine. <laughs> yeah, there, there are no vegetables in the land. There's no. a lot of like intense description of food, but there are no vegetables. Which, yeah, I really like that scene too. I felt like it, it's not often talked about in the context of like how intense their relationship is mm. because you get all this stuff where they're like murdering people for each other later on. But it's just this really nice, quiet demonstration of domestic intimacy yeah. That I thought was like really nice. Even before Patroclus dies, Achilles expresses the wish that everyone else would die, leaving the two of them alive, which is kind of the opposite of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, that was like the first thing I wrote down when I was, I made like a handful of notes, which were mostly just, hmm, that's gay. Which you <laughs> did not bring to this recording, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, there I'm wasn't sure... enough of them. And like, I, I have them in my head. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure Jason has it in their head. Yeah, and the first thing I noted down was, yeah, Achilles wishing that everyone except for the two of them would die which yeah i'll, I'll read you the is line interesting he says our father zeus athena and apollo if only no trojan could get away alive not one and no greek either and we too could survive the massacre to tear off troy's holy diadem of towers single-handed so yeah it's being like everyone should die and then we can tear down the walls of troy together it's <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact that he like i including 
like every Trojan should die. Like, yeah, you're at war with Troy, but it was not necessary for him to include that every Greek should also die so they could tear down the wall single-handedly. Like, it's just very intense. It's so intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's a very intense man. Their re- yeah, yes. <laughs> Maybe the most intense man. Um, their relationship is also key to the plot. It's what moves Achilles to finally return to the field after refusing to for the bulk of the poem. And it's also key to Achilles' character arc. It resolves the whole long life or glory question in moving Achilles to finally decide to kill Hector. And then, of course, there is Achilles' reaction after Patroclus dies, which is about as intense as any reaction to anything ever could be. He describes Patroclus as more to me than any other of my men whom I loved as much as my own life. Um, He refuses to eat or sleep. He just wishes for revenge, saying... I have no wish to live and linger in the world of men unless before all else Hector is hit by my spear and dies, paying the price for slaughtering Patroclus. The last thing I'll mention is the dream Achilles has after he has killed Hector. Oh, yeah, the dream. I'm coming there, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just very sad, that scene. Where Achilles falls asleep on the beach and has a dream of Patroclus uh, or is visited by Patroclus's ghost. And Patroclus says, One more request. Do not let them bury my bones apart from yours, Achilles. Let them lie together, just as you and I grew up together in your house. So let this one container, the golden two-handled vessel your lady mother gave you, hold our bones. And then Achilles reaches out to embrace Patroclus, but there's nothing there. And I just think that's all pretty romantic. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It is. A tragic doomed romance. Yeah. So tragic. So doomed. Such romance. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Doge memes in my Achilles episode. (laughs) It's more likely than you'd think. (laughs) So, yeah, as I said, if we just kind of have that broad speed through of their relationship in the text, that's kind of enough to make you think this might be like a little gay. Nevertheless, the general modern understanding by scholars is that the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad is fundamentally an ambiguous one, with there being nothing explicit to point towards a queer relationship between them. And this obviously begs the question of, well, what are we expecting to find? What counts as explicit evidence? But yeah, like scholars often gravitate to that exact thing, the question of finding a depiction of sex or at least of like physical affection between Achilles and Patroclus pointing out that these aren't represented between them in the text and for some scholars that's like well gavel 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 they're not gay and we'll we'll get into talking about how that's like quite a limited way to discuss if someone is queer or not but I also first wanted to talk about the fact that it is actually disputed that the text doesn't imply that they have sex and so from that huge zoom through of the thing we're going to narrow it down to one word and we're going to talk (laughs) about that for a bit amazing In a 1978 article bluntly entitled Achilles and Patroclus in Love, (laughs) W.M. Clarke uh, draws our attention to the last book of the Iliad in which Achilles' mother, Thetis, is imploring Achilles to turn away from his grief. She says to him, My child, how much longer are you going to eat your heart out in lamentation and misery, forgetful even of food and bed? It must be a good thing to make love to a woman. You have so short a time to live. So the notable part of this to Clarke is the it must be a good thing to make love to a woman. In Greek, that is agathon de gunaiki per enphilotheti misgeste. In particular, we're focusing on the particle per. So, <laughs> agathon de gunaiki per. I'm so sorry, Lydia. No, this is amazing. <laughs> Do not apologize for what is unequivocally the coolest thing so far. It is debated exactly what value this word adds to the sentence. 
John Denniston, in his remarkably dry study on Greek particles, literally just entitled Greek Particles, that's what the book is. Oh, this it's is, a book? It's a it's a thick, thick book. I'm sorry for what you've been through to bring us here it today. It has like a 14-page section on the word per. I see. Detailing its uses. It's a very useful text. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient languages are like that, yeah. Languages are like that. Anyway, John Denniston, in his study on Greek particles, says, the particle denotes not that something is increased in measure, but that the speaker concentrates on it to the exclusion of other things. And then he says a lot of other stuff and gives a lot of examples. Clark takes this to mean that the particle is putting a stress on the word before it, on the with a woman. And so the translation that Clark offers based on this reading is, it is a good thing to have sex and I mean with a woman. And Clark says, well, there's no point in stressing that if Homer views women as the only possible sexual option and views the contrast that's being made here to sex that Achilles has had previously with a man, i.e. with Patroclus. Okay. Checkmate. I do want to make it clear that this isn't an objectively accurate reading of that particular word in that particular section of this very long epic, however. The scholar Marco Fantuzzi, for example, understands Per to be modifying the entire clause and contrasting Achilles going and having sex with a woman to eating his heart out in grief, as has just been mentioned. Mm. Whoever is right about what this implies, it should nevertheless be noted that this is the only arguably explicit reference to a sexual relationship between them in the entire epic, and so the implications of it alone cannot be that big. Clark also points to the constant touch that Achilles bestows on Patroclus after death, um, so he's touching and holding and lying with the corpse. And as we've also already mentioned, when Patroclus's ghost appears to Achilles, they try to embrace and then they can't, which is just so tragic. Mm. Clark thinks that it, it doesn't make sense for this to not be evocative of the type of touch that they shared in life, mm-hmm. and furthers this as evidence of physical affection between them. You make a, like, affirming sound, but I actually <laughs> thought that was pretty weak. Okay, it's yeah. invalid to me. Well, I guess my thought with that is that if the comparison is meant to be to touch we assume they shared during life, that would only be more emotionally evocative if we were ever actually, like, shown that. That's true, yeah. Um, And there are other small things that scholars like Clark point to. Um, During Book 9, for example, when the Greeks come to Achilles and try to persuade him to return to battle, Phoenix tells the story of Meliga, who withdrew from battle in indignation and could only be persuaded to return by his wife, Cleopatra, um, offering a parallel to how Achilles can only be swayed by Patroclus, sort of casting Patroclus in the in the figure of a loved one. It only matters so much how right Clark and others who argue for these pieces of evidence are, because it's undeniable that the poet does treat this with reticence um, and doesn't treat it in the same matter-of-fact way that he treats sex between men and women. So before analysing that further, I want to talk about some other texts and then we can kind of talk about them all as a whole. So these texts are all considerably later than the Iliad. They also all reference the classical Athenian institution of pederasty. Um, So I'm going to explain to you what that is now. I initially (laughs) would have preferred to have done an episode on pederasty before this as a kind of like lays the baseline of what we sort of know and understand about Greek homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the things that COVID has done to our scheduling, (laughs) you would not believe (laughs) So one day Irene will be on this podcast again. Yes. One day. So we decided to do this episode because we wanted Jason to be here for it. And Jason has to be here. (laughs) Hello. I'm here to be confused. (laughs) How are you feeling? Confused. (laughs) 
To be incredibly brief, we will come back to it in an hour-long explanation one day, <laughs> pederasty was a socially sanctioned relationship between an adult man and an adolescent. Um, the older partner was called the Erastes, which is literally just like the lover, um, and the younger was called the Eromanus, the beloved. That's kind of all you need to know about it, um, but I will also note that penetrative sex was not considered socially acceptable in such relationships. It almost certainly happened a bunch, but it wasn't meant to, technically. Um, and intercrural sex was considered to be more acceptable, which is where the older partner puts his penis between the younger partner's thighs and achieves orgasm that way. <laughs> I just feel like every time we have to explain what intercrural sex is on this podcast, it's so awkward. Has this come up before? <laughs> it has. Okay, it must sure. be in the Rome episode, I reckon. I don't think the Romans cared about intercrural sex. Yeah, but I think we may have discussed the contrast. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Okay, so like Rome lets you do anal yeah all right nice so this, so <laughs> what we're saying is intercrural sex can be on the next bingo card <laughs> um so yeah i i just tell you those things because those are things that are going to be referenced in the stuff we're about to talk about hmm. um so the first one we're going to talk about is a courtroom speech if this was not already thrilling enough <laughs> um, <laughs> It's called Against Timarchus, and it was given by the orator and statesman Aeschinus in 346 BCE. Um, Aeschinus was accused of treason because of his role in Athenian embassies to Philip II of Macedon, which we don't need to get into. <laughs> um, and he defended himself by attacking Timarchus, who was the leading prosecutor, accusing him of being unfit to act in court because essentially he had done sex work in his youth. Uh, that's obviously very morally dubious, but that was how ancient Athens thought about that. So regardless of the variety of Aeschinus' allegations, which we can probably assume is not. Um, his speech provides important information about Athenian attitudes and laws concerning sexual relations between men. Um, so he differentiates between dishonorable male-male sex, which is characterized by promiscuity and the expectation of payment, and is therefore tantamount to sex work, which to him is bad, and honourable relationships between men, and he quotes Homer for an example of the latter. Um, he explicitly mentions, quote, the friendship between Patroclus and Achilles, which we are told had its source in passion. However, Aeschinus himself also notes that this is not explicit in the Iliad, saying, although Homer speaks in many places of Patroclus and Achilles, he hides their love and avoids giving a name to their friendship, thinking that the exceeding greatness of their affection is manifest to such of his hearers as are educated men. I do enjoy that, like, he's just having the exact same debate we're having now. To clarify, when is this court document from? 346 BCE. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So that's all I wanted to say about that. You kind of picked up on the main point, which is that, like, this is just the same argument that we're having. Mm. Yeah. And we're going to move on to Aeschylus now, who was an early Greek tragedian. Uh, his plays were produced in the 5th century BCE. So Greek tragedies were almost always based on mythologies of heroes, and this one is no exception. Um, we have seven plays surviving in full from Aeschylus, most famously the Oresteia. Um, although he is stated to have produced somewhere between 70 and 90 plays. And that is a pretty standard example of how much we have surviving from ancient works. Yeah. One of these lost plays was Myrmidons, which was the first of three plays produced um, on like content about the Iliad. Um, so they were generally produced in trilogies because that's how they were like put on in competitions at festivals. The following two fragments are set after Patroclus's death and they're spoken by Achilles um, and they reference intercrural sex, which is why I had to explain to you what that was. So he says, And you did not respect the sacred honour of the thigh bond, ungrateful that you were for those countless kisses. <laughs> the thigh oh bond. Yes. The thigh bond. <laughs> 
you know, because of all the thigh sex we had. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have another one. Is it as funny? No, it's, you know, it's much the same. Okay. This is while he's mourning, to be clear, so, like, show some respect. <laughs> No. <laughs> and in a very similar vein, Achilles also says, and I honored the intimacy of your thighs by bewailing you. Again, explicitly referencing how they used to have sex with the thighs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. So before we say anything about that, I am going to give you our last ancient text, which is a part of Plato's Symposium, and then we're going to compare those two. Um, so Plato's Symposium is a philosophical dialogue dating to about 385 to 37. BCE. It depicts a group of men at a symposium. Do I need to explain what a symposium is? Do yes. You yes. Okay. So, you know when you have your friends over for dinner? And <laughs> after dinner, you kind of hang out and chat and get kind of trashed. And maybe there's like someone playing music or something. That part is a symposium. So it's a group of men at a symposium. They're sitting around on their little couches on the ground, reclining and drinking wine. And they're challenged to give a speech praising Eros. Honestly, you can use Plato's symposium as a you know, sort of talking point or piece of evidence regarding basically anything surrounding gender and sexuality that you want in the ancient world, but it would be well worth us just talking about it alone. It's amazing. <laughs> there is so much going on. But for our purposes, a guy called Phaedrus gives the opening speech and he discusses the nobility of someone fighting for or sacrificing themselves for their loved one. So you can see how this becomes relevant to Achilles and he quickly gets onto that. So he says, Achilles, son of Thetis, they honored and sent him to his place in the Isles of the Blessed. So the gods sent him to heaven, basically. Yep. <laughs> because having learned from his mother that he would die as surely as he slew Hector, but if he slew him not, that's a terrible translation. I got this off the internet. <laughs> But if he slew him not, would return home and end his days an aged man. He bravely chose to go and rescue his lover Patroclus, avenged him, and sought death, not merely in his behalf, but in haste to be joined with him whom death had taken. For this the gods so highly admired him that they gave him distinguished honour, since he had set so great a value on his lover. So again, it's explicitly understanding them to have been lovers, and it's very, like, upfront about that, and it's not trying to convince you. That's just, like, what was going on. Mm. Interestingly, the text then goes on to explicitly address Aeschylus' version um, and we kind of know more about Aeschylus's version from this than from the surviving fragments we have um, so Phaedrus says and Aeschylus talks nonsense when he says <laughs> that it was Achilles who was in love with Patroclus for he excelled in beauty not Patroclus alone but assuredly all the other heroes being still beardless and moreover much the younger by Homer's account so let's break that down a little bit <laughs> So when he says, um, and Aeschylus talks nonsense when he says that it was Achilles who was in love with Patroclus, he's not saying they're not into each other. He's saying that Aeschylus views Achilles as being the older one, the one who is the lover. Mm -hmm. And that's what he means, that Achilles loved Patroclus, not Patroclus loved Achilles. Phaedrus disagrees. He thinks that Patroclus was the older one and Achilles the younger. And he goes on to give evidence of this, where he says, you know, you can tell this because Achilles was younger and he was like really hot and he didn't have a beard and he didn't have a beard because <laughs> he's young i also want to note that phaedrus is exaggerating the age difference there and saying achilles is much younger although homer's iliad does refer to achilles as being the younger one there's no evidence that there's like this huge age gap that would indicate that they're in different phases of life or anything like that which is what phaedrus is implying yeah and certainly they were children at the same time at least like from my reading of the text yeah i feel like that's implied yeah, yeah. so what this disagreement evidences is essentially just that their understanding of achilles and 
and Patroclus's relationship is anachronistic to the Iliad. Um, they have this set idea of how male-male relationships are, which is in this like age-differentiated relationship of an older man and a younger man, and they're trying to apply that to the Iliad. And it, it doesn't work. They don't fit into that. There's not one who is clearly the older one and the younger one. Patroclus is older, but they don't seem to have been in different phases of life. Uh, Patroclus is also clearly of lower status in the pair, mm. and they're both surely adults by the final year of the war. They've been here for a decade. Yeah, the claim that Achilles had no beard. Like, if we just kind of assume that, you know, having a beard references a man having reached puberty, not whether or not that man can grow a beard. Like, him saying Achilles has no beard. It's like, what age do you think Achilles was when he went to this war? I guess that just does not make sense. A baby. <laughs> Yeah. He'd already had a child. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely an adult man. So having looked at a few other ancient authors' opinions on Achilles and Patroclus, we're going to take a sharp jog forward into the future and talk about the opinions of an American psychiatrist on Achilles and Patroclus. Wow, America exists now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Jonathan Shea is a psychiatrist who works with American combat veterans from the Vietnam War uh, who are dealing with severe chronic PTSD, just to bring this down. (laughs) And he wrote a book called Achilles in Vietnam, which compares their war experiences with Homer's depiction of Achilles' experience of war in the Iliad with the view that our understanding of both can be enhanced through comparison. That's such an interesting, like, Mm. book to have written. There's, like, a lot of stuff we could say about this book. Mm. I think his premise is very good. I think his execution is flawed. Okay. (laughs) But we're not going to do a full review of Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam. Uh, We're going to, unsurprisingly, talk specifically about how he talks about the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Mm. So one of the parallels he draws is between Achilles and Patroclus's relationship Relationship and the intense relationships formed by Vietnam combat soldiers during their service. So he quotes one veteran who describes the relationship he formed with his fellow soldiers as being a closeness you've never had before. It's closer than your mother and father. Understandably, for these men, it's particularly difficult to bear the death of these companions who they're especially close to as compared with other men that they know. Veterans described the compassionate parts of themselves dying when their close friends died in war um, and some viewed themselves from that point as being already dead themselves. Shea compares this to Achilles' expressions of grief uh, which include self-mutilation, weeping, loss of appetite, self-reproach, intrusive memories of the dead and so forth. Uh, Achilles is also depicted as being already dead. He expresses this in his conversation with his mother um, and Homer describes a black cloud covering Achilles' eyes which is a metaphor for death in Greek. He also uses the same word uh, kemai which means to die but it also can just mean to fall um, for Patroclus falling dead in battle and Achilles falling down beside the body of Patroclus. For many Vietnam veterans, the death of a loved one is part of what moved them to a berserker state, so a state of, of rage and violence and one characterized by a lack of concern for their own survival and a lack of respect for the humanity of the people that they are fighting. The comparison to Achilles there scarcely needs to be drawn. Um, revenge dominates the story after Patroclus's death until near the end of the and a major part of it is how he disrespects Hector's body after he kills him. So some of the things he highlights there I think sort of really brought home emotional aspects of the Iliad for me in a way that they 
they never really had been before. Mm. And this is having mm. studied them, you know, having translated large sections of it from the Greek in university classes. So I think, again, I'd just like to reiterate that I think that his idea is a very good idea mm. of how to look at this text. And I think it's a, it's a really worthy way of doing it and that it should be undertaken by anyone who studies it. Now let's talk about how he's homophobic. <laughs> I see. I see. The, the way you kept saying this, I was like, there's definitely a bot on the end where, like, mm. this man's going to say something that is bad. Yeah. He also explicitly notes the language difficulties that Vietnam veterans have in talking about these relationships. Mm-hmm. So calling them friendships is obviously kind of inadequate. Like, mm. What we understand as friendship isn't really expressing what those relationships are, but love isn't a term that is comfortably used outside of familial or romantic relationships for these men. Mm-hmm. Veterans also describe the difficulties that they had because they would prioritize these relationships once returned home in a way that wasn't considered socially acceptable. Um, So work or family wouldn't understand why they would drop everything to aid a fellow veteran Mm. in a way that they would have understood if if it was like, say, their wife that was sick or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm. Yeah. Because Jonathan Shea's interaction with the Iliad is so tied up in communicating truths about the veterans that he works with and their needs and so forth, he fundamentally rejects any romantic or sexual reading for Achilles and Patroclus's relationship. Instead, he draws attention to the way that brother is sometimes used to describe the relationship between combat veterans, so like your brother in arms and things mm-hmm. like that, um, and highlights that the two were foster brothers. Unsurprisingly, he also notes that the Iliad reports no sexual contact between the two. Shay's lack of experience as a classicist is perhaps best evidenced by his flimsy argument that if we handed the Iliad to a person with no knowledge of the ancient world, their understanding would be that the only sex in the book is heterosexual, as if this counts for anything and is not an explanation of our cultural biases and not of Homer at all. That's like not just lack of knowledge as a classicist. That's just kind of lack of knowledge of how history works. That's part of being a classicist. Yeah, 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 yeah. You learn how to think about history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would also say it's a lack of understanding and knowledge of modern people because, yeah, we might not think that there's sex, but I think a lot of people who read the Iliad, even without any understanding, understanding of whether or not it's gay are going to think hmm that relationship sure is quite close maybe there's a romantic relationship between these two people well that's inconvenient for Shay so no they wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) what about all those scholars that have been discussing that for years so I assume that Shay doesn't talk about the possibility or the reality of sexual and romantic relationships between these modern soldiers that he's writing about not specifically his specific patients so Mm. a lot of the uh, comparisons that he draws are drawing on lengthy quotes from his patients oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I'm like you know sure was done ethically to be clear mm-hmm. um, so he doesn't kind of insinuate or explicitly say that any of them were romantically or sexually involved with mm-hmm. another man but he does briefly address the concept of gay and lesbian soldiers Okay. so I'm going to read you quite a long quote now and we can discuss it so he says the Iliad contributes nothing either way to the debate over whether gay and lesbian soldiers are a good thing for the army in which they serve Oh, the question this already is like not the angle I expected here. Like the question is irrelevant to the subject at hand. It only provides an excuse to push from one's thoughts the humanity of soldiers and the great love that they feel for one another. Later on, he continues, Achilles's grief for Patroclus would not have been greater had they been a sexual couple, nor less if they had not been. Many combat veterans are denied compassionate understanding by civilians because so many people cannot comprehend a love between men that is rich and passionate, but not necessarily sexual. Veterans need to voice their grief and love for their dead comrades if they are to heal. However, many have learned to keep quiet because of 
of their culture's discomfort with love between men that is so deeply felt. And that is essentially all that Jonathan Jonathan Shea has to say about either homosexuality in the Iliad or in the modern armed forces in the US. So, like, I feel like there's some valid stuff in there about mm-hmm. how homophobia and, like, our general cultural discomfort with male-male affection, which is definitely linked to yep. our cultural homophobia, mm-hmm. means that men struggle to deal with and address their emotions. Absolutely. Like, that's very valid. But the culpability of that is put onto gay and lesbian soldiers and just people in general who would want to read this text in a queer way. Yeah. Which yeah. is not where it belongs. Yeah. And there was something in there. What was – there was a sentence with the word humanity in it? Yeah. Yeah, um, the question is irrelevant to the subject at hand. It only provides an excuse to push from one's thoughts the humanity of soldiers and the great love that they feel for each other. Yeah, that to me is perhaps the most concerning part. Yeah. This idea that you can't recognize a queer reading of the Iliad and the humanity of soldiers at the same time. It almost implies that the humanity of these soldiers would be decreased if they were queer. Yeah, I don't think it's a very, like, well thought through statement. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's um, just kind of, if, especially if that's the only time he talks mm-hmm. about this, it's just kind of the throwaway line of, like, oh, yeah, we have to consider that, like, this yeah. could be the case, but, like, uh, that's I not my point, let's get rid of it. That most of this, most of this comes from footnotes as well. This isn't even addressed uh-huh. in the body of his text. But yeah, like for him, reading the Achilles Patroclus relationship is about its value to the men who are his patients, mm-hmm. and introducing any kind of concept of homosexuality to him lessens its ability to serve that function. Therefore, it's verboten. Yeah, and I think that that's a terrible shame. Jonathan Shea is the one who brought modern day gay and lesbian soldiers into this argument, mm-hmm. really. Um, And so it is worth noting that they have certainly been denied the compassion that he's advocating for. I feel like this whole attitude that Shay's taken, we've already kind of talked about how Shay's not a historian, but I think it is something we encounter in history more generally, is this idea that queerness is not incorporated into history. Like, okay, you can have queer history and we'll Mm. acknowledge it exists, but like do it over there and it does not influence every aspect of history. Whereas like queerness should be discussed in this setting and it would be a valuable contribution. It doesn't need to only be there when you're doing queer history. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, the reason why I draw attention to Jonathan Shea's homophobia rather than that of like any random classicist that I could have found to do the same thing (laughs) is because Jonathan Shea's entire project is about the ways in which our modern experiences and the Iliad can inform each other in mutually enriching ways. And that's like a a wonderful thesis. And it's just astounding to me that he can understand the value of this in light of his own patience and his own area of interest, but just be so totally deaf to it beyond that scope. I mean, I think his comment about gay and lesbian soldiers, it does kind of, he's not thinking about gay and lesbian soldiers as people. He's thinking about the abstract concept of soldiers being gay or of Achilles and Patroclus being gay. I think he's really just failing to consider the actual individual experiences of gay soldiers. To return to Aeschylus and Phaedrus, I wanted to read you a quote from uh, the scholar Thomas Hubbard. Indeed, what Phaedrus fails to grasp is the genuine inadequacy and irrelevance of his own, as well as Aeschylus's conceptual schemata when it comes to analysing a relationship such as that between Achilles and Patroclus. Both Phaedrus and Aeschylus run up against the problems inherent in trying to reinterpret Bronze Age heroic relationships in contemporary terms, a difficulty that scholars of gender and sexuality today have with the Greeks in general. And as we've sort of mentioned already, Aeschylus and Phaedrus are having the same discussion that we're having and running into the same problems that Jonathan Shea is running into 2,500 years later. 
Mm -hmm. So despite the general agreement that the model of Athenian pederasty is anachronistic to the Iliad, scholars still struggle to quantify what the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad is, and over the exact relationship between that and pederasty in Athenian times. The ages and origins of pederasty are unclear and debated. Some scholars, such as Daniel Ogden, believe that the classical Greek form of pederasty evolved out of erotic relationships between soldiers, and Achilles and Patroclus represent the custom's prehistory. Others believe that pederasty evolved out of earlier forms of initiation rites, so pederastic relationships are central to several myths, including the Ganymede and Zeus myth, which is found in the Iliad, um, and some argue that this is indicative of like earlier patterns of cultic initiation that oh, may yeah. have been known or have been developing at Homer's time. Mm-hmm. Fantuzzi takes a different focus, saying that Instead of forcing Homer's Achilles and Patroclus to wear the straight jacket of the classical idea of pederastic love, we might rather consider the Iliad not so much an implicit beginning of the pederastic narrative, but rather take it as the final attestation of the traditional epic motif of intense male comradeship that is found in at least two Middle Eastern poems, whose latest versions proceed or are contemporary with the likely time of the Iliad's written fixation. Um, and he's talking about the story of David and Jonathan and the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. If you would like to know more about the story, <laughs> Of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, you can listen to our episode on the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, where we have um, some of the same conversations that we've had here. Yes. Hmm. And the reason for that is because Fantuzzi is right. Like, there are a lot of similarities between the sort of like general plot and the characters in the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Iliad and Achilles and Patroclus. And a lot of people make these comparisons. Um, and the same goes for David and Jonathan, which we have not yet done an episode on, but I guess one day we will. <laughs> he continues to say, Though the narratives concerned with these couples turn out to be very eroticized in terms of language and imagery, the interactions between them remain within the boundaries of the vocabulary of friendship or kinship. According to a recent definition, their relations would be homosocial, not homoerotic. So it's it's certainly interesting to compare these three texts, but I think that placing it within this context instead of a proto-pederastic sort of context mm doesn't really do all that much to render it as less queer. All that that does is give it a context that has a clear absence of sex, maybe. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm just really unconvinced that sex needs to be here for this to be a queer relationship. And it's also worth mentioning that all of these texts are heavily debated as to whether they're all gay anyway. <laughs> like, it's hardly yeah. <laughs> revolutionary to say, I think David and Jonathan were gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we had a whole episode talking about Gilgamesh Enkidu yeah, where I probably think being pretty gay. We concluded mm. that they were like way gayer than we thought they were going to be going in. Um, oh yeah, there was that whole thing where they like kind of got married. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were lots of yeah weird innuendos as well. David Halperin explores the Iliad through a comparison with these very texts. And his conclusion is not so much, see, it's not gay, but instead, quote, while we cannot say for sure what is going on, what this iconic space that is the Iliad is not, we can say for certain, it is not a space that can be seen to be utterly free of the atmospherics of homoerotics. <laughs> that was like some very fancy wording, but I think I agree with him. <laughs> it's a little, it feels a little weaselly to me. 
He yeah, concludes, of homoerotic. He concludes heterosexualization of the Iliad will never be convincing. Okay. I like um, it. I don't think it's Weasley at all. David Halperin is a gay man and like push, pushes pretty hard for things being gay. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it feels Weasley to me as someone who is not a writer of history yeah, yeah. texts. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. I read these quotes to you guys and I'm like, wow, these sound like really, really over the top. But I read them and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah this yeah. is just, just how academics This is how talk. people write. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it, yeah. it's not how academics talk, to be clear. Like, it's how a specific kind of academic uh, talks. Do non-historians not write like this? <laughs> yeah, non-historians write differently. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, like, and that obviously there's a greater and lesser extent, right? <laughs> but like, yeah. Okay. Like, ac- academia doesn't have to be written like that. <laughs> okay. Sounds fake, but okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so my point is that whilst a comparison to those texts and putting it within that context for some scholars yields a pretty straight looking Iliad for others it yields one that is just as convincingly queer as it always was I think that it's interesting as well to look at Fantuzzi's point that David and Jonathan Gilgamesh and Enkidu and Achilles and Patroclus's relationships stay within the boundaries of the vocabulary of friendship or kinship because they certainly do pretty much stay within that vocabulary but there's a Mm. difference between them staying within that vocabulary and staying within those social roles you know even if we can't easily put Achilles and Patroclus into what we would expect of like a a typical sexual relationship um it's also definitely beyond the norms of other potential relationship types that are found in the Iliad so Fantuzzi mentions friendship or kinship and we have plenty of other examples of companions and at least one other significant example of brothers in the Iliad being Menelaus and Agamemnon and the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus is not paralleled by those relationships Mm. at all yeah absolutely like there are so many conversations uh particularly I'm thinking of like Patroclus um when he's going out you mentioned before how he like cares for wounded Greek soldiers Mm -hmm. um and he you know is inspiring people to fight and going out and helping them and you know being upset about the fact that they are dying while uh he and Achilles and the rest of the Myrmidons sit and do not fight Mm -hmm. but there's no comparison Mm. between the closeness of his relationship with those people Mm. who he you know clearly has a lot of affection for and the closeness of his relationship with Achilles which is just on a completely different Mm. level yeah so if we need to understand Achilles and Patroclus's relationship as like a subset of a kinship relationship or of a friendship then it's clearly one that is distinct from the everyday kinds that we see at play elsewhere in the text and it's one that allows two men to be superlatively intimate and essentially function as the other's other half the absence of sex does nothing to make this not queer Mm. it just doesn't absolutely yeah Yeah. and i think like obviously we always struggle to define queer on this podcast and just in general but i think we often like come back to saying it's just kind of a a relationship that's outside of the norms of its time and like especially when two people are seen as being like closer than would be normal for people in their position at their time and in that case like yeah 100 percent. that's i mean obviously we can't talk about the norms of the time of the Iliad but we can talk about the norms that we see within the Iliad itself Hmm. and like yeah in that case it's definitely queer yeah that's interesting I think also like that definition of queer generally just falls down in the ancient world because Hmm. a lot of the time the texts that we're discussing as like queer texts perfectly fall within social models that are completely acceptable at the time and I guess that brings us back to to like the reason we ask all of these nitty-gritty questions about that one word in book 24 and so forth (laughs) 
which is to serve the purpose of trying to understand the poet's intent. And the reason why we want to understand the poet's intent is to try and interrogate what homosexuality looked like in Homer's time. Um, So if we're understanding that the poem has this model of relationship that is born out of like other epic traditions of the Near East, you know, it's fundamentally a motif of that. I think we need to bring it back to the real people that this might have affected and sort of ask in Homer's time, what was that model available to people? Mm. Or was it one that is meant to evoke an earlier age of heroes? If it is available in Homer's time, is that just something that happens in certain environments, such as in war, only in certain social classes, such as the elite, obviously, or, you know, was it not available to real people at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of the time when people are talking about this, they're talking about, is it gay? But really, it seems like the bigger question is, like, what is gay in that context? (laughs) (laughs) And so that seems like the more interesting question (laughs) to try and piece together. I was thinking back to that conversation we had about that one particle and one... (laughs) The real hero of this episode. The particle, Pear. (laughs) Yeah, so I I was thinking about that when you were talking about, like, obviously how the authorship is pretty ambiguous and, like, many poets presumably, like, presented this poem at various times in ancient Greece. And, like, we can presumably think that some of those poets were queer or wanted to give a queer reading and would have or could have meant that particle to put emphasis on, like, the contrast between Achilles sleeping with a woman and Achilles sleeping with a man some of them probably didn't mean that particle in that way. And like you said at the start, that like we lose intonation, for example, in the, when we write a poem down, and probably there's a way you could say that sentence, which is really obviously gay. You could waggle your eyebrows. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like we just, we can never know. And I'm sure some of the poets did. Yeah. I mean, that is yeah. a weird moment to inject comedy, given it's his mum being like, please stop grieving for your dead lover. <laughs> <laughs> but like... Mm. Yeah. But hey, a morbid sense of humour, I feel, is probably not unique to a modern audience. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I I think it's easy for these questions to become this kind of basically like linguistic argument. Mm. And I think Mm. that it needs to come back to we're studying history to try and get at the experiences of people who lived a long time ago. And if we're looking at queerness in the Iliad, then we're trying to get the experiences of queer people a long time ago. And like, what did this mean for them has to be the question. Mm. Not like, who knows the most about philology. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to make the point that the question of authorial intent can only take us so far in meaningfully examining the question of how queer are Achilles and Patroclus. To take us back to the beginning, this is this text is one particular moment in a fluid, evolving mythology. Myths grow and change to suit the needs of their tellers. We're talking about texts from 500 BCE, you know, for two and a half thousand years, the vast majority of the time which we have had a documented Iliad you know, a documented stories of Achilles and Patroclus, there have been queer readings of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, yes, it's true that both classical Athenians and Jonathan Shea <laughs> are demonstrably anachronistic in their readings of it. The issue with that is not that they're tampering with some kind of, you know, sacred canonical image, but that they're attempting to limit them to a reading that suits them. Mm -hmm. Mm. As I said before, Shay's project proves the worth of bringing modern experiences to an ancient text, and this is not less true if that's a gay man or a Vietnam veteran who are finding echoes of their own experience in the Iliad. It's only our current cultural biases that make one of these feel less authentic or the other seem more suspicious than the other. The Iliad is fundamentally at its core a story of intense love between two men and denying queer readings of these as viable 
fundamentally guts the experience of reading the text and with interacting with mythology at all, and that is true whether or not it was intended by whoever Homer was. Yeah, I think that point about thousands of years of people consuming this piece of media in a way that often was interpreting it as queer, Mm. and the fact that obviously as modern audiences we're arguing about whether or not to interpret it as queer, but the fact that we've pointed to so many examples of historical people doing the same thing, it feels to me like that it's a historical queer text regardless. Yeah. Kind of as you said, it's a historical queer text regardless of whether or not the person who we don't know very much, if anything about, intended it as such Mm. because of how historical people have interpreted it. I found that really compelling in the way that a lot of our listeners tend to respond to our episodes and a lot of the ways that people respond to queer books and queer pieces of media where they talk about kind of understanding this, you know, connection with a queer community and understanding that connection Mm, with a queer mm. history. And I don't know, that just, yeah, that felt very emotionally resonant to me. Mm. Um, Yeah, like even if Homer didn't know what a gay was... Queer people have been passing this from hand to hand for two and a half thousand years, and you can't get our fingerprints off it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, where we referenced Achilles and Patroclus in the Frederick episode, (laughs) Um, the classics were referenced in Wonder Woman. This season's just Mm. all about Achilles and Patroclus, truly. (laughs) (laughs) The Achilles and Patroclus expanded universe. Uh, And I think that brings us really well into mentioning what it is that we're going to be talking about next time, or maybe the time after. (laughs) Again, COVID is hell. We don't have a schedule. (laughs) Um, uh, Where we'll be continuing this conversation into the modern day. And this is why we wanted you here, Jason, as our like media consultant, having talked about how Achilles and Patroclus are represented in ancient texts, how they're represented in modern texts. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the 2004 movie, Troy, Madeline Miller's 2011 book, Song of Achilles, and the 2018 BBC drama, Troy, Fall of the City. But for now, we've been Queer as Fact. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. Um, if you'd like to email us directly, you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also write to us a real physical letter with your hands uh, <laughs> and send it to our PO box. So if you'd like to find the PO box address or any other of that information that I just said, you can go to our website, which we now have, uh, which is www.queerasfact.com. Uh, if you'd like to support us financially, you can buy some merch that has our logo on it at our red bubble store it is also queer as fact uh or you can support us on patreon where we are also queer as fact (laughs) um and if you do support us on patreon you'll get some fun perks uh like being able to vote on episode topics you know some free stuff and posts that we make and things like that you can listen to more of our episodes on spotify apple podcasts or wherever good podcasts are found if you do listen to us on apple podcasts in particular we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and a review It really helps us to reach a wider audience and it's probably the best way you can support us without spending money, which, you know, we don't like expect. Yeah. (laughs) If you do do that, we will try and read your review out on this podcast, but you're kind of giving them too fast for us to keep up. So thank you. And I'm sorry. (laughs) This review comes from Bel Canto, who is from Canada, and they say, highly recommend. I've been binging this podcast since I ran across it, and I've learned so much from queer history from all over the world. Well-researched and very fun to listen to. Aww. Aww. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
We respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Bunurong. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on July 15th. Thank you for listening and we'll see you then.